Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. May we purify an ocean of worlds. May we free an ocean of beings. May we see an ocean of dharma. May we realize an ocean of wisdom. May we purify an ocean of activities. May we fulfill an ocean of aspirations. May we make offerings to an ocean of Buddhas. May we practice without discouragement for an ocean of eons. This dedication is from the King of Prayers. And it is part of a practice <clears throat> dedicated to Samantabhadra. Samantabhadra is the primordial Buddha. And he's considered uh, to be the Buddha of practice and of meditation. And he's the one that's usually depicted seated on an elephant. So you have Shakyamuni Buddha usually sitting in full lotus in Zazen Mudra or the Earth Witness Mudra. And then you have on one side Manjushri with a sword of wisdom and Samantabhadra seated on an elephant. I think he may be holding a lotus um, as the embodiment of practice and meditation. But somebody had shared this um, prayer with me and I thought that this little excerpt was fitting, of course, for us, the Ocean Mind Sangha. And I wanted to begin by saying a word about prayer, you know, particularly because it's not a term that is uh, often used in Zen. It does appear in the greater scheme of Mahayana Buddhism and also Vajrayana. And, you know, there are different ways to think about prayer. Many of us come from a Judeo-Christian background, so we're used to relating prayer to a god or gods. Um, and so the framework shifts a little bit in Buddhism. But, you know, when I was reflecting on it, I was thinking that it, it, prayer has different aspects. There's, there's introspection reflection, a, a kind of petition or supplication, and attention, you know, listening. 
So there's that, that common saying, you, you may know it, that prayer is talking to God and meditation is listening to God. But if we think about it more broadly and perhaps more simply as being in relationship with, being in relationship with ourselves first and foremost, but also with the sacred, right? with reality, with awakening, with the divine within. And although that sounds a little new agey, prayer is really quintessentially old age. We probably have been doing it since before we could even speak in words, right? with language, reaching toward something vaster, deeper. And so if we think of prayer as, as being in relationship with that, let's call it a more connected, more integral part of our being, then in that sense, you know, prayer is also aspirational. Right? So it's not just that I'm praying to find my cookies at the supermarket. You know, I pray that I may realize an ocean of wisdom, that I may free an ocean of beings. <clears throat> right? I aspire to be the person I want to become, and I invoke that person. I reach with that aspiration, I reach toward that knowledge, that wisdom. And as we well know, you can't become what you already are. So that's just one way of speaking. Right? I often say, it's not that we become Buddhas, it's that we realize that we have always been does. And so in prayer, we're asking that I, that you, and all of us are able to realize it, that we're able to recognize who we really are. And I, and I use that phrase so often, <clears throat> right, who we really are, what things really are. And I was thinking, you know, even that is a little bit strange, because it's not like we're faking it. It's not like we're pretending to be someone we're not. So there's the real us and the fake us or the false us. It's more that <clears throat> it's more that we can't get to all of us, that I can't get, that I don't have access to all of me, or that I don't quite know all of me. And that is why I practice, to see, to live all of me, and to see and to live with all of you. I wish I could sing that song, All of Me, but I can't really sing, so I, I'm not going to go there. Um, But if we think of prayer as, as being in relationship with that part of myself that is already 
wise and kind and awake, then that's what I reach toward. That's who I'm talking to when I pray. And, you know, many of you know that I am actually a Buddhist who prays. I'm a Buddhist who believes in God. But again, I don't, that's not necessary. And the God that I believe in is, you know, is not a man in the sky, is, is the ground of being, is the ground of reality. It's, is that awakening? And so if we take, if we set aside the idea, the concept of God, we could say we're, we're reaching toward that wisdom, toward that primordial Buddha that Samantabhadra represents. We're calling forth, which is what to invoke means, our good qualities, our wish for awakening, bodhicitta, our enthusiasm, our zeal, right? We spoke of this last week, our determination, Adishtana. And we ask that these qualities be alive and working, functioning in each of us. Or we ask the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas for their support, for their example. This is what Shantideva does at the beginning of the way of the Bodhisattva. This is what Samantabhadra does at the beginning of this prayer. or what we're doing as we ask Samantabhadra. We're, we're enlisting the help of those who are a little farther along the path or who have fully realized the path. And we call them to us, to guide us, to protect us, to be an example. So in saying, may I purify an ocean of worlds, may I free an ocean of beings, may I see an ocean of dharma, may I realize an ocean of wisdom, I'm really saying, may I be that ocean, may I be that vast and enduring. Every day I have the good fortune to gaze at the ocean during my day. And when I go down, I get closer, I see it come and go. And I see it just even from my, from my terrace, from my balcony, I see it change. The color, its movement. Sometimes it gets muddy when the seaweed comes. And you see the bands of seaweed floating. And sometimes it's clear. It's like glass. Turquoise. Just like... Oh. And then I just want to run down and throw myself into it. Sometimes I do. In the dedication to a memorial service, in our tradition, the liturgist chants, vast ocean of dazzling light, marked by the waves of life and death, 
The tranquil passage of great calm embodies the form of new and old coming and going. I've always loved that part of the dedication. And note what it's saying. Someone, everyone, swimming in a vast ocean of light, dazzling, dies, passes away, passes from life to death. And we would say back to life again. And this passage is tranquil. It's filled with great calm. May it be so at the moment of our death. May we remember this dedication as we face that threshold. The tranquil passage of great calm embodies the form of new and old coming and going. Each day, we become a little older. Each day, we come and go. And of course, the question is, from where to where? And who is the one who's passing? The quintessential question, of course, that every religion tries to address, what happens when we die? We come and we go. Time and time again. Until we realize something so completely that that cycle is broken. But then because we're Buddhas and because the Bodhisattva hood is implied there, then we choose to still come and go <laughs> for the sake of everyone else. but it is different when we choose it. And now I'm going to state the obvious by saying that in order to be in relationship with, in order to pray, we need to be present. We need to be focused. We need to be quiet. As Marguerite pointed out in her Dharma glimpse, when there's not quiet, everything becomes, well, in some ways harder, yes. Everything is busier, of course, but it gets harder to see, to hear, to feel ourselves. We know this, of course. I am stating the obvious from a Buddhist perspective. And yet, I think it's important to remind ourselves now and then, because so often when things get challenging, and especially when things get busy, we forget that we have always the capacity to create that space, that quiet, that stillness. I said to a couple of people recently, if, if your day is such that it is filled with stuff, and for some of us that's the case, find that space 
find it in the gap between the last breath and the next one. Find it in the space between thoughts, as Pema Chodron said in that last chapter. Use prayer itself to quiet you. That's the good thing. That's the nice thing about prayer, that it, it helps you to be focused and quiet. So it becomes a, a self-strengthening loop. In my book, I wrote about, briefly, I wrote about hesychasm. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's the practice, it's the monastic tradition in which the main practice is to rest into silence through prayer. And they do it specifically through the repetition of the Jesus prayer. And hesychia is Greek for stillness or silence. And of course, there are the words of the prayer. And there's also just the, the, the act of repetition, the act of immersing yourself in a word, in a phrase, which in Buddhism we do through the repetition of mantra. And I have mentioned in the past that mantra means mind protection. And so that is quite mm, overtly what we're doing is we are protecting the mind. We're gathering our attention, we're turning it in, and we let it rest on one word, one phrase, one sound even. The three refuges, for example. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. In our lineage, when a student sows the rakusu, if they are sowing it themselves, with each stitch, they repeat one of these phrases. I take refuge in the Buddha as they make one stitch. I take refuge in the Dharma as they make another one. For those of you who will not sew your raksu, I will come up with a practice for you. Because what you're doing, quite literally, is you're sewing the three treasures into your robe. And so we'll find a different way for you to do it once you have your raksu. And so when you put it on, this field, of benefaction, when you put on the Buddha's robe, you're not just putting a piece of cloth on. That's the least of it. And that's why I wasn't too hung up on the fact of you sewing your own rakusu. Given the practicalities, it, it, it was impractical. But because in one sense, that's the easy part. The challenge comes how you live it once you have it on and how you remember when you forget that you're wearing the Buddha's robe, right? 
Vajrayana practitioners chant Om Mani Padme Hum. It's one of the more well-known mantras in Tibetan Buddhism. A chant to Avalokiteshvara Shenresig in Tibetan. And it means roughly praise to the jewel and the lotus. But, you know, a, 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 a mantra can be very simple as we have created, as I've created them myself. May I be safe. May I be kind. May I be joyful. May I be awake. And so when you are lying in bed, sick, for example, in pain, I mean, there's many ways to heal. There's many ways to work with illness. But that is one way that is always accessible. You're there, you're not doing anything. You don't feel well. Why not gather the mind? May I be safe. May I be free of pain. May I be joyful, which is a hard one if you don't feel well. So how do you find joy? Where do you find it? How do you look for it even? I mean, that's a practice in itself. And so really, the purpose is not just to gather the mind, or not even just to rest in silence, but to enliven your mind and your life at every moment. As I often say, you can do a whole formal liturgy, standing in front of your altar, offering incense or something, you know, offering one of the chants that we know, but you can also, as you lie in bed, just before you close your eyes at night, send out into the universe an invocation. You could wish that you rest well and that you wake up ready, awake, willing to practice. And so, as I said, you know, the purpose is, is not just to, to gather the mind, but to enliven it, because the opposite is death by distraction. I, in the past, I have quoted from a sutta, a sutra called the Sadaka Sutta. And there's actually two, two suttas that are called Sadaka, and that are related. One, the one that I usually quote, there's a big, it's like there's a big festival and there's a performer. It's, you know, Marguerite is with her partner, John, watching somebody perform. And then there's a guy next to them, regular guy. He likes pleasure. He doesn't like pain. He likes life. He doesn't like death. He doesn't want to think about it too much. And so in order to enliven him, the Sumbans, the villagers of this town called Sadaka, they say to him, okay, we're going to help you out here. They give him a bowl filled to the rim with oil. And they say, you have to put it on your head. And now you have to walk through the crowd and give the bowl to the singer. 
And if you spill even a single drop of this oil, look behind you. And following this man is another really burly guy with a huge sword. And the Sumbans say, if you drop even a single um, drop of oil, if you let it fall, if you let it spill, off with your head. And then the Buddha asks his monks, friends, what do you think? Is he going to let himself be distracted, this man? And they say, no, my Lord, he's certainly not going to let himself be distracted. And he says, well, I offered you this parable to make a point. That bowl of oil is mindfulness of the body. One translation says mindfulness immersed in the body. And he says, this is how you should train yourselves. You think we will develop mindfulness. We will pursue it. We will give it the reins and take it as our base. We will give it grounding. We will steady it, consolidate it and undertake it well. This is how you should train your, yourselves, friends. Right? Give mindfulness the reins, he says, because a moment we miss is a moment we lose. And how do you hold this knowledge and not freak out? Right? How do you be present but not uptight? To hold that thought. Because in the other sutra, this is kind of answered. There's two acrobats. They're practicing their act, and the master and the disciple. And the master stands and he holds a, a huge bamboo pole. And he says to his assistant, who is called Frying Pan, <laughs> I swear, he says to Frying Pan, okay, climb on top of the, the bamboo pole. And then you balance yourself and, you know, I'll have the bamboo pole. It's not clear exactly where he's holding it, but I imagine it if you have seen this sort of act, you know, either he's balancing on his mouth or he's balancing on his head and frying pan is up on the other end of the bamboo pole, balancing herself. And so once she's on top, the master says to her, okay, now you watch after me and I'll watch after you. This is how we're going to show our skill get our reward and take care of each other. <laughs> it's interesting, he doesn't just say, this is how we'll take care of each other. This is how we're gonna show off, impress everybody. This is how we're going to get our reward and this is how we'll take care of each other. And frying pan, balanced precariously on the top of that pole says, oh no, master, no, 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 that, that won't do. I'll take care of myself you take care of yourself. That's how we'll show off our skill. Get our reward and take care of each other. And the Buddha says, just so. Just so. Taking care of ourselves, we take care of each other. Possibly the best relationship advice ever given. He's not saying be selfish. He's not saying just think of yourself. 
He's saying, take care of the thing that you can take care of. Protect the mind and the body that you can protect. I mean, quite um, realistically, yours. And in so doing, you'll also protect the other. How? By not killing them through distraction. Your distraction. Your lack of awareness or understanding. Because think of conflicts that you have had with others. Think of how they started. Think about how they escalated. What was happening? And just to be, make it very clear, he says, so how do you watch after others when watching after yourself? He says, through cultivating the practice of mindfulness, through developing it, through pursuing it. This is how you watch after others when watching after yourself. But he's saying, focus on yourself, focus on what's going on in you. Don't worry about what the other is doing. Turn the light around and shine it on where you have agency. I mean, he, you know, he's essentially saying, don't try to change the other. Take care of what's going on here. That's how you take care of the other as well. And then just in case, he covers all the bases. Because then he also asks, how do you watch after yourself when you're watching others? Right? How, how is it that you're taking care of yourself when you take care of the other through taking care of yourself? He says through endurance, through harmlessness, through a mind of goodwill, and through sympathy. That's an interesting term in the translation. I couldn't find another one, but he's saying, he's saying you know, when you watch others, you are patient and steady. You don't harm them. You wish them well. You understand them. And watch, all of those are about you still. About how you are handling yourself. And he says, this is how you take care of you while taking care of them. Benefiting others benefits us. Being present to others as being present to ourselves and vice versa. And this is something to keep uppermost in our minds. Once again, when we're struggling. And some of you, in fact, have shared that you do this when you're not feeling well, bringing others to mind. I believe I've said this before, because then you realize you're not alone. You've never been alone. And that can be a source of great comfort and strength. So, death by distraction, life by attention. Because also, quite literally, when, if one of those acrobats gets distracted, the other could die. 
or they themselves could die. And so even though it's such a basic teaching, pay attention, everything depends on it. Right, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Four Immeasurables, the Five Remembrances, the Six Paramitas, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, the Eight Awarenesses of Unenlightened Being, the Nine Dwellings, the Ten Stages of a Bodhisattva, to name just a few. If we don't remember to practice, or if we can't focus on practice when we're doing it, everything else becomes more difficult if not impossible. That's why the Buddha says our lives depend on mindfulness. And if you think about it, everything that we know, we know at some level of quiet, right? When things are chaotic, inside or outside, we can take in the world, which is what I said earlier. And the interesting thing is also that everything we know, we've learned somehow. There's a, there's a dialogue, one of uh, Plato's dialogues, it's called the Menno. <coughs> and in it, a young general, whose name is Menno, asks Socrates, how will you inquire into that which you do not know? And if you find what you want, how will you ever know that this is the thing that you didn't know? So, in other words, he's asking, if we know something, then we don't need to learn it, right? We already know it. But if we don't know it, how can we even know that we don't know it? First of all. And two, how could we learn it at all? We don't know it. I often ask, how do we know what we don't know? And Socrates, I mean, he essentially, Plato has Socrates essentially answer that there's no learning, that there's only recollection, which is perfect, my dear friends, given that sati, shmirti, mindfulness, means to recall or to bring to mind. And so one way to answer the question, how do we know what we don't know, is that we do know it. We just have to remember it. So in this case, learning is a process of recalling, of remembering. It's all stored in the oceanic storehouse consciousness. All of those seeds, remember? This was part of our study of the Yogacara and Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary, understanding our mind. All we have to do is bring those seeds to consciousness. The fact that we're a Buddha, the fact that we're already kind and wise and selfless, And so let me just say it again so that it's very clear. The reason we can gain insight and wisdom into what we don't know 
is because deep down we do already know it. And I don't know about you, but that is actually my experience. When I see something, something important, the feeling is like, of course. It's so obvious, but it was not obvious a moment ago. And so we're simply bringing it up to the surface of that ocean so we can see it, so we can use it. The reason we can become Buddhas is because we're already Buddhas. Please remember this too, when you're discouraged, when you don't feel like practicing, when it doesn't seem to be working, when there's nothing happening, just try saying to yourself, I'm a Buddha. And don't just be like, oh yes, we say, you know, Sri said to do this. Really, really try it. When you're feeling really down, when you're feeling really discouraged, say to yourself, I'm a Buddha. I'm a Buddha, damn it. And nobody can take that away from me. Because it's true. It's true. It's true. So don't let yourself die a slow, painful death <laughs> by distraction. Don't let yourself be content with not knowing what you don't know. This is why we ask, we investigate, we inspire ourselves to get larger, to go deeper, to see farther. Master Dogen would always say something like you, you investigate, you study, and then you investigate even more. And so, so to really encourage yourself is such an important part of practice. You know, I do quite a bit of cheerleading. <laughs> I've said this. And it's my job and I love it. It's part of my job. It's not all of my job, but it's part of my job. A, a big part of my job, <laughs> actually. But ultimately, the best cheerleading for you is from you. You know that, right? I'm just standing in. I'm just filling the part until you're ready to do it yourself. Because that's the most important encouragement you'll ever get. The one that comes from you to you. That's also what you're doing when you're praying. So we could call it prayer, we could call it positive thinking, which we would call right thought or right aspiration, the second factor in the Noble Eightfold Path. I mean, you can call it whatever you want, but do it. You don't have to call it prayer if it stops you. Ah, I'm praying, I don't pray. Okay, just talk to yourself. Encourage yourself. Gather the troops. Sound the bugle, line up all the warriors in your mind and in your heart, and let them know you're ready. Not for battle, but for living. You're ready, and you're not going to let anything stop you. Because why would you?
to end another prayer. It's called Blessing the Boats by Lucille Clifton. May the tide that is entering, even now, the lip of our understanding, carry you out beyond the face of fear. May you kiss the wind, then turn from it, certain that it will love your back. May you open your eyes to water, water waving forever. And may you, in your innocence, sail through this to that. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.